This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, February 29th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The documentary series Making a Murderer presents substantial questions about how criminal investigators and prosecutors do their jobs in ways that sometimes do not serve justice. I recently spoke with Tim Lynch, director of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice, and Sean Armbrust, the executive director of the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project, to discover what viewers should take away from the Making a Murderer series. Uh, the documentary is about a man named Stephen Avery, who is involved with the criminal justice system, remarkably with two cases. The first case, he's accused of attacking a woman, and he is convicted of that crime and serves 18 years in prison before DNA evidence shows that he was innocent of that crime, and he's exonerated and gets out of prison. And there's a lot of attention then focused on that miscarriage of justice, how the system could have gone wrong. And then the series takes another turn where he is accused of a second crime, an even more horrendous crime of murdering a young woman. And he is back in the criminal justice system asserting his innocence. And the documentary goes through his trial and raises questions about whether or not he's guilty of that second crime. Um, I think that's a, a fair summary. And I think what has really captivated people, it's a couple of different things. Um, first of all, I think there's a perception out there that the criminal justice system primarily traffics in certainty. And so there's this idea that most of these cases are fairly clear cut and the right answer is readily apparent. Um, and that's not usually true. Um, you know, many cases are clear cut. There are many guilty pleas in the system, but there also can be a lot of ambiguity in the system. Um, and I also think the thing that's particularly interesting is how much footage you have of the investigation, of the trial, so you can really see what goes into one of these criminal investigations, and it's not the way it looks when you're watching Law and Order. Right. And one thing that um, when talking to people who have seen the series, they're they're really shocked because they think that, you know, if they don't have any plans to commit a crime, they're, they're not going to have any contact with the criminal justice system. And Stephen Avery's first case where he's accused of attacking this woman, he has alibi witnesses. He's with his family that day. And so he has all these people who know where he was and he wasn't near the scene of a crime. And yet the victim, in a case of mistaken eyewitness you know, identification. She says, that's the guy who attacked me. And so it gets a lot of people thinking like, well, that could happen to anybody because if they've got alibi witnesses and somebody's just mistakenly pointing the finger at you in court and say, this is the person who attacked me, um, it's really shocking that somebody could go to prison for a long period of time based on that type of evidence. How did prosecutors handle this case? I mean, watching, you said there's a lot of footage. So how did how well did they handle it? Well, I think before you before you start with the prosecutors, I think you have to start with the investigation. And the investigation in this case is where things started to go off track. Um, you know, this is an area where there are, I, I, I don't know it that well. I'm from about an hour and a half away. But there's not a ton of violent crime. So there aren't a lot of murder investigations that are happening in this area. And you see a few things right off the bat that I think forced the investigation to go and in a direction that ultimately didn't serve the state or the defense. Um, and one of the first things is that, you know, they had an, a name of another potential suspect. But as soon as they heard Stephen Avery's name, that's the direction they went in. And of course, they went in that direction because they thought he did it. But in going only in that one direction, 
you lose the ability to fully investigate the case because you've already decided what your theory is. And then from there, all of the evidence gathering is about proving that theory, not about testing that theory. Um, and I think that's a really critical difference. And I think that's where you see things go off the rails here so that by the time it really gets to the prosecution, the only evidence they're given is evidence supporting the Stephen Avery theory. And they support the Stephen Avery theory. And so you just never see any investigation that, that takes you anywhere else and that explores anything else. And at the end of the day, if Stephen Avery did commit the crime, the state has a weaker case as a result of that kind of investigation. And if he didn't commit the crime, you've lost the leads because too much time has gone by. Now, uh, we can forgive prosecutors then in some regard that this is the evidence they were handed, this is the evidence they have. So, And their incentive is clear once uh, charges emerge that this is the job is to try to convict this person. It, that isn't the job. The job is both to zealously advocate and to do justice. Um, and sometimes what you see, particularly in high-profile cases, um, is that the discretion that prosecutors have is not something they always use. And so when an investigation is presented to you as a prosecutor, um, there are some prosecutors out there who are terrific prosecutors who really test that, and that, that can lead to pretty contentious relationships with the police. Um, and there are some prosecutors who don't test those theories as much. Um, and I think when they don't test those theories as much, once again, you see both a weaker case for the state and, and a harder job for the defense. Now, when I say that's the job of the prosecutor, what I mean is that's how they're rewarded. Yes. So, I mean, to me, that like the clear incentive for prosecutors is uh, we went to trial this number of times, we won this number of times. Yeah. Um, you know, that often is how prosecutors are incentivized. It's how they're judged. Um, you know, I'm starting to see some shifts in that in some places. You know, Richmond or the Virginia Bar just awarded its kind of ethical lawyer of the year award. It's a very big deal um, to the Commonwealth's attorney in Richmond in large part because he helped us get an innocent guy out of prison. That's interesting. The award is for the ethical prosecutor of it's, the year. It's, well, it's for the most – it's sort of for the lawyer who embodies the highest ideals of the profession. Um, and it was given to a prosecutor who worked a wrongful conviction case. So you're seeing some prosecutors, you know, Ken Thompson in Brooklyn, um, other people around the country who are being rewarded for doing justice. Um, but I think the predominant mentality still is that the job of the prosecutor is to secure convictions. Um, it's a public safety role and that's seen as securing convictions and the other piece of it isn't always as apparent. Now, one of the things that makes this documentary so captivating to millions of people is that the evidence, you know, there's evidence on both sides. This this woman, Teresa Halbrock, uh, was murdered and her bones were found in Stephen Avery's backyard. On the other hand, as the trial progresses, the defense's theory is that the police, they believe Stephen Avery committed this crime and yet they, the defense uncovers lots of peculiar things that happened during the investigation and their theory is that the police manufactured evidence against Stephen Avery because they thought he was guilty. And so they're raising lots of doubts about the case and this is what captivates, I think, the audience um, so much. Like to give you one example, Teresa initially goes missing 
for a few days. And everybody's looking for her and her vehicle. And one of the things the defense brought out during the trial is that they have one detective who calls in to dispatch and he, he gives the dispatcher Teresa's license plate number. And they've got this on, on uh, it's recorded. And this is several days before her car is actually discovered on the Avery property. They find a key in Stephen Avery's uh, bedroom that belongs to Teresa. And, and uh, Stephen Avery's DNA is found on the key. But what the defense brings out is that it's very peculiar that Teresa's DNA isn't on that key. So what they say in their, in their, def- in their uh, closing arguments is that this key was scrubbed of all DNA evidence and that uh, Stephen's DNA was then put on the key. And the prosecutor ends up arguing that the, the Teresa's key found in Stephen Avery's bedroom is not a big part of the case anymore because of the def- doubts and skepticism that the defense has brought out during the trial. So there's incriminating evidence, and yet there's evidence of wrongdoing. And I think that's what has got everybody talking about this incredible uh, documentary. I mean, it's it's a really compelling case because there's so much on both sides. Right. Um, and, you know, I'm not Stephen's lawyer. I'm not that familiar with kind of the intimate details of the case. But just as a viewer... Um, it's incredibly interesting to sort of watch that go back and forth. Um, and, and sort of in my role at the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project, you know, we see this a fair amount where you dig into a case and yet you still don't have the answer at the end of the day, um, in part because, you know, an investigation isn't handled all that well. And so you can't get to the answer. And one of the sad Parts of the case is the case, the documentary is mostly about Stephen Avery, but he has a co-defendant in the second case, his nephew Brandon, who is just a high school student, and he is brought out of class one day uh, to be questioned by detectives, and he ends up getting drawn into this case as a co-defendant who's guilty of rape and murder, and. Uh, it's a very sad aspect of the case because there's no evidence tying Brandon into this murder. No DNA evidence of Brandon's is found in the house, in the garage, on the property. The only thing that incriminates Brandon is his own statements where he's being questioned and tricked by by the detectives uh, into incriminating him, himself. And it brings out another problem in so many other cases is that the lay people think, well, an innocent person would never confess to a crime. And yet we have Brandon's interrogation on videotape, and you can see how he is a slow person. He's just a student. He's not represented by an attorney. He's questioned without really the permission or presence of his parents. And he is drawn into this case. And uh, it's very sad. I don't believe Brendan had anything to do with this crime based on what I saw in that documentary. I mean, watching those interrogations was just heartbreaking. Um, And it also really is a window into that phenomenon of false confessions, which is so counterintuitive to most people. Um, And the best way I've ever heard it described was by a a police detective in D.C. who actually obtained a false confession. And when people ask him why anyone would falsely confess, his response is, why would anyone confess to something they did do? It's not in your interest. Um, And the point there is that it's the job of the police officers in an interrogation or what they perceive to be their job is convincing you to do something that is totally against your interest. 
whether you're guilty or not, um, they, they're usually interrogating you because they think you are. Um, what they need you to do is admit to what you did when there's no way that's going to help you. And so they, they can't physically get you to make those statements. And so what they have are a series of interrogation methods that are designed to get people to do something that is demonstrably against their interest. So their job is to convince you that it is in your interest to confess. Um, and for the most part, that works to obtain confessions from people who are actually guilty. But as you can see in this case, um, sometimes what happens is that confessions are obtained from people who aren't guilty because they perceive that it's in their best interest to confess. Um, you know, I think you see that from Brendan in the last episode where he talks about how admitting it is the only way he's ever going to get to go home. And that is really what he believes, even though admitting it, as it turns out, didn't help him go home at all. Right. They kept saying things like, we can't help you until you tell us what really happened. And every time he asserted his innocence, they would say, you know, stop lying. We know you were there. Uh, we can't help you. You can't go home until you tell us what happened. And then he's just worn down and he ends up wanting to tell these police what he thinks they want to hear. And it ends up getting him in horrendous trouble. Uh, and the other thing is about when you talk about the problem of innocent people confessing, well, what do we do about this? And then for years, the answer was like, let's record the confessions. And we do have Brandon uh, interrogation fully recorded. Uh, and, you know, because years ago, it was like a detective would say, well, he told me he did it. And then that detective would testify in court and juries would tend to believe the police. So the idea was by recording these interrogations, we can tell the juries exactly how uh, an innocent person was led astray. And yet here in this documentary, Brandon's interrogation is recorded and he still gets into terrible trouble. Right. Well, and I think that's where um, his representation at the beginning of the case was a real problem for him. Um, you know, I think videotaping interrogations, it doesn't prevent false confessions, but what it can do is prevent, you know, obviously false confessions from being used to convict the wrong person. But in order to do that, you have to have a meaningful adversarial process. And if your lawyer is not really representing you properly, then you can't have that meaningful adversarial process. Um, and so I don't know what would have happened differently if Brendan had had better representation at the outset. Um, you know, again, I'm not his lawyer. He has great lawyers and they're more steeped in those facts. But what I can say is that, you know, videotaping an interrogation doesn't do any good if there's no one there to critically examine it. So more broadly, um, to what extent are prosecutors and police investigators making use of tactics that shouldn't be allowed? Um, you know, I think, I can, again, I haven't seen this whole interrogation, so I can't speak to what techniques they used specifically here. Um, one technique that you do see in this interrogation, that in, in the parts you can see in the series, um, is that they provided him with facts about the case. And so there's this moment, I forget which episode, where they're asking him how she's killed. And he can't give them the right answer. And you can see the detective. He's so frustrated because, of course, in his mind, Brendan knows the right answer and just isn't providing it. And, you know, Brendan is guessing because he's trying to make the detective happy. Um, and finally, the detective says, I'm going to tell you, she was shot. And, of course, that's how he knew she was shot. And so when you're feeding those details, 
what you do is take a confession that is just so far afield from the true details of the crime and you start to ground it in some kind of reality. Um, and, you know, people are wondering, well, how did he know that detail? Well, he knew the detail because it was fed to him. Um, so that's something that really should not be part of police interrogations. Um, and I don't think that's something that most interrogation methods are, are in favor of, but it's the sort of thing that, that happens sort of in the moment in interrogations and really needs to be guarded against. Um, a second thing that police are allowed to do that I don't think they should be allowed to do is lie about evidence. And good interrogators don't. Um, a lot of police detectives I've spoken with would never lie to a suspect in an interrogation because you lose your moment. You know, if you tell somebody that you know their fingerprints are at the scene and they know they were wearing gloves, they immediately know that you've got nothing on them and they clam up. Um, so it's not, I mean, it's not a particularly sound interrogation method because it's not that effective. But in the case of somebody who's innocent, if you're telling them that, you know, someone's in the next room implicating them and the only way out is to confess, or you're telling them that you've somehow got physical evidence placing them at the scene, it kind of feeds into this, well, I guess I just have to admit to this now and I'll get out of it later. Um, and, and so that can cause people to falsely confess. Um, the amount of time that some of these interrogations take, and, and I don't know how long the interrogation in Brendan's case took, but, you know, you see false confessions going, you know, four, five, six, 15, 20, 24 hours. Um, and the detectives are rotating in and out and getting breaks, but the suspect is just in the room. They're stewing alone. They're handcuffed to a chair. Different detectives are rotating in and out and taking a shot at you. Maybe you're dozing at an uncomfortable table, but, you know, the idea that you can with that most people could withstand that many hours of interrogation is pretty crazy. Um, they finally end up telling themselves, look, I'll just tell them what they want to hear so I can get out of here. And, you know, then I'll talk to my parents. Maybe we'll get a lawyer and then we'll start fighting this thing. But I think that's how when they're finally broken down, they're like, I can't take this anymore. I'll just tell them something, make them happy, and I'll get out of here at last. And then I'll start fighting this case tomorrow. And they just don't have really appreciate the damage that they are doing once they give that false piece of information or confession, putting themselves into the crime. They don't realize down the line how devastating that's going to be for them when the jury hears that. Exactly. Um, and then the last piece of it is that the, the interrogation methods that most people in the United States use really aren't, they're not investigative. They really are designed to elicit a confession. That's their purpose. And so they do this, they have this technique that they call minimization and maximization. And the first thing they do is maximize. So, you know, we've got your mom in the next room telling us the real story. You know, we've got this evidence against you. You know, you're going down. Um, and then they minimize. And they say, but, you know, if you tell me it was in self-defense, you know, if he was coming at you, there's something I can do to help you. But if, you know, if you don't do that right now, there's nothing I can do to help you. And so they minimize it. They show you the light at the end of the tunnel. And that's where it starts seeming like it's rational to confess. So when you've got that technique and then you're combining it with the ability to lie, the number of hours you're there, um, confessing does seem rational. 
And I think there are a lot of people, not just people who are young, not just people who have low IQs, but a lot of perfectly rational people who would decide that confessing was actually the right choice in that moment. <clears throat> Innocent people do get convicted. That's a fact. And it's not always due to some sort of uh, ill will on the part of prosecutors or investigators. But to the extent that it is, uh, and these people are at the very least being unethical and perhaps doing things that are illegal, how ought that to be treated by the justice system? We had uh, Alex Kaczynski here speaking recently, spoke with me about uh, some of the problems in the criminal justice system with evidence and with uh, prosecutorial misconduct. So what are some of the uh, more common issues that uh, prosecutors and police should have to grapple with when it comes to trying to solve a crime? Uh, well, I think the the thing you most typically see in wrongful conviction cases that is considered, you know, the, the sort of routine form of prosecutorial misconduct in these cases is the failure of prosecutors to turn over evidence that would be exculpatory to the defense. And the Constitution requires them to do that. Um, and we see over and over again that that doesn't happen. Um, in part because criminal discovery isn't what you normally think of when you're thinking about discovery in court. Um, you know, in the District of Columbia, you can go to trial without knowing who the witnesses against you are, you know, unless you have a really good investigator because that kind of discovery just doesn't happen. And so the prosecutors have a lot of control over what's turned over. And I think that's where you see a lot of problems. Um, you know, you have prosecutors who don't get all of the information they're supposed to have from the police because, of course, you know, record keeping between various agencies is terrible a lot of the time. And so things aren't shared with prosecutors, so they can't share them with the defense. You have situations where a prosecutor looks at a file and sees a piece of evidence and thinks, well, you know, that, that doesn't help the defense. You know, here are the nine reasons I can think of that that doesn't help the defense. And they don't turn it over because they're not the defense lawyer. And so they can't necessarily conceptualize why it would help the defense. And there's a dramatic example of that in this documentary involving the first case against Stephen Avery. There's a neighboring police department in the next county over, and they say, we've got a guy in custody, and he says he uh, attacked a woman, and there's a guy in prison serving time for this offense that I committed. So the detective calls up that neighboring police uh, department and says, we've got this guy in custody. He's confessing to a crime, says you guys got the wrong guy. And that information is never passed along through the system to Stephen Avery's defense counsel. They would have no reason to know about this inf information, but it's in the hands of the government and it just uh, sits on somebody's desk. And uh, so it could have gotten Stephen Avery out of prison 10 years before DNA exonerated him. So that's a dramatic example of the government having evidence tending to show that somebody's innocent, something the defense attorneys really could have used, and it never gets to them. Right. And we see that over and over again. And for the most part in my cases, it isn't intentional. 
Um, it may be intentional in that they see the evidence and are intentionally not disclosing it, but it's not intentional in that they see the evidence, understand what it would mean for the defense, and then choose not to disclose it. And that, that certainly happens, but I think those cases are the exception. And so what I think needs to happen is that people need to look at why these systems are failing, not not focus on individuals and whether or not they committed misconduct or should be blamed, but how this can happen in our criminal justice system. Um, why is it that we haven't done a better job training people about, about recognizing their own tunnel vision and how to avoid their own tunnel vision in these cases? You know, why is it that we still interrogate this way when we know that it can lead to false confessions and when we know that there are other countries that interrogate or interview differently and don't have the same kind of problems with false confessions. Um, and, and I think when we try to focus on blaming a particular person, not that people who commit willful misconduct shouldn't be punished, but I think those really are the bad apples. I think they're rarer. And I think the more common thing is systems that fail because people aren't properly trained and don't necessarily understand the implication of the way they're conducting investigations. And so you see these cases happen and nothing gets resolved because everyone's sort of playing the game of who to blame. And when you're trying to blame people, they cover their heads in the sand and then that's sort of where things are entrenched. Right. And, you know, the this documentary has been terrific in that it's got people talking about our criminal justice system, talking about the problem of wrongful convictions. And, you know, the lessons go well beyond the Stephen Avery case, as you said. Uh, we have to remember the scale of the American criminal justice system. We have two million people in prison right now. Let's say the government is getting it right 95 percent of the time. That means we have about 100,000 people in prison who, who don't belong there. So I think what we need to remember is that uh, – conservatives especially, is that they have to be reminded that police and prosecutors, they work in a bureaucracy. Sometimes these bureaucracies are corrupt and they do manufacture evidence. Sometimes these bureaucracies just make mistakes and they don't want to admit these mistakes. And we have to remember uh, the human toll uh, of these wrongful convictions. It's not just the 100,000 people. It's also their families, uh, their parents, uh, their brothers and, and their children. It has a huge impact that, that ripples out. Um, another issue we haven't gotten to yet is what, what happens when we discover that an innocent person has been convicted. Here at Cato, we identify thousands of things the government shouldn't spend money on, and yet the government is very stingy when it comes to compensating people who it is now evident, have been wrongfully imprisoned for years. And this is where the government, I think, should be very generous and, and give lots of money to these people with a big apology saying, we're sorry, you know, we locked you up for 10, 15, 20 years. This is where the government should spend lavishly. I agree. Um, you know, our clients who come out of prison, I think our most recent exoneration involved a guy who spent 29 years in prison for an attempted rape he didn't commit. And he's 59 years old. He now has no employment history to speak of. He doesn't have social security built up. He hasn't been to a doctor outside of prison in years. And he walks out and there's very little for him. Um, you know, luckily, Virginia does have a scheme for compensating the wrongfully convicted. And it's complicated and not easy to obtain. But he looks like he's on track to get the money. 
but it could just as easily go the other way um, if he lived in one of the 20 states that didn't have a compensation scheme for the wrongfully convicted. And, but that's all at the wrong end of the uh, process here. So in terms of the carrot and stick problem uh, associated with making sure that police and prosecutors and f frankly uh, public defenders or defense attorneys are all doing their jobs properly, it seems like the incentives are constructed in a way to uh, we got a guy, we think he probably did it, let's get this process going as quickly as we can. People develop their uh, tunnel vision. So in terms of the carrot and stick problem of uh, misconduct, either intentional or otherwise, what, what do we do? Well, I, can, I mean, I teach a whole class about that. Um, so we could spend a lot of time talking about what to do. But I think some of the short answers are we need to change the way we do investigations um, in, a, in a couple of areas in particular. Um, we do need to do a better job with interrogations. Wisconsin records them, but they should be recorded everywhere from start to finish. Now, just, just to, to clarify what, what you're talking about here, in many cases, interrogations are recorded they are transcribed and the recording is destroyed. That is not how it should work. Right, but that's, that's, that's often, often how it goes. That's true. I have a case like that where you can see a lot in the interrogation, but you know, we, we don't have that tape. Um, so yes, it should be recorded from start to finish, transcribed and preserved. Um, and we should also take a look at the way we do interrogations in this country. In the United Kingdom, they do what's called investigative interviewing rather than interrogations. And it doesn't, I mean, that sounds like semantics, but it's a really important difference because what they're doing in the UK is actually investigating as opposed to using the interrogation for only one thing, which is to get a confession. Turns out they're getting the same number of confessions in the UK and they're better confessions because they're getting better evidence. Um, that is one thing we can do to improve the system. We need to make sure that criminal defendants all have access to high-quality defense lawyers. And there are a number of jurisdictions that do that very well, and there are a lot of jurisdictions that don't do it very well. Um, the you know, prosecutors don't have a lot of resources. The defense has even fewer resources. Both should have more resources, and the playing field should be leveled. Um, we should be talking a lot more than we do about tunnel vision and how to avoid it in these cases. Um, and we're not doing it, and we're not doing a very good job of it because I think sometimes we want to play a blame game. I think sometimes people want to be more certain than they ought to be about their investigations, but we need to be talking about it and talking about how to prevent it. We need to be learning from our mistakes. All of these wrongful convictions are a window into things that are wrong with the criminal justice system. And while we have done a good job learning about them in some ways, we are not doing a great job learning about them across the board. And there are people who are starting to do these things called sentinel event reviews, where you have a, you know, a sentinel event. It's kind of like a plane crash, right? A, a wrongful conviction or something else that goes wrong in the system. And all of the stakeholders get around a table and talk about how this system allowed it to happen. It's non-blaming, and it really is designed to fixing the system so that this can't happen again. Because when you punish people, you just take those people out and you keep the same system in place. Um, and I think the last thing, so Dean Strang, one of Stephen Avery's trial lawyers at the end of episode nine, 
said that the, the real problem he saw in this case was a tragic lack of humility of everyone who participated in the criminal justice system. And I think that lack of humility is really apparent here, um, where you, you are, people are so certain that they have the right answer and that they have the capacity to understand you know, what Brendan Dassey's demeanor means. Um, they, they really do lose the ability to think more critically about their investigations and about what they're doing. Um, and I think humility would go a long way toward preventing cases like this and situations like this. Tim Lynch directs Cato's project on criminal justice. Sean Armbrust is executive director of the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>